the Son of God, the Word of God, was made flesh and dwelt among us. Reaching the peak of manhood, he began the work for which he became incarnate. He began to make known the Father unto his people, speaking to all of the kingdom of heaven, of the spiritual blessings that would be theirs, of the new birth, of their eternal souls, of the Father's love for them, of why He, the Father's only begotten Son, had been sent into the world, and what He must endure at the hands of men. His time here on earth, as a whole, was not spent, metaphorically speaking, on a mountaintop, but rather mostly in the valley, beneath clouds of suffering and sorrow and being misunderstood. Rarely if ever did the crowds, those for whom he was to sacrifice his very life, relate to him other than from the viewpoint of their limited, earthbound condition, never rising above their own interest and cares, more often than not considering him to be nothing more than a great teacher or prophet or worker of miracles. Their interest in him were primarily dictated by the concerns of their own well-being desiring only those things that they could see and touch, for physical healing, the filling of their bellies, seeking from him only those things which might benefit their daily existence. In a sentence, they sought after him only for what they might gain from him, not because of any understanding or desire to know who this man, he who in actuality was so much more than man, truly was. We read in the Bible of the thronging multitude pressing in upon him, following him everywhere he went, but who nonetheless did not understand him, who he was, what his words meant, why he did not take up their cause, free them from their Roman oppressors and usher in the kingdom that they had been taught the Messiah surely would do upon his appearance to them, the chosen people. We know that he had to draw away, to separate himself, to depart to places of solitude, often in the middle of night in the early morning hours, that he might be able to pray, to be strengthened, to once again breathe the air of heaven, that place where he had been from before the foundations of the world. We wonder with incredulity at how the people could not recognize divinity in their midst. We are astonished by the unbelief of those who were in daily contact with him amazed at their inability to acknowledge and recognize him for who he truly was, God in the flesh. But let us be brutally truthful and honest with ourselves. How often do we, likewise, visualize and perceive of Jesus no differently than the crowds did back then? How often are we praying to and envisioning him as he was as he walked among us here on earth? a time when his true being was veiled by his humanity. Just as Moses had to wear a veil over his face when he came down from Mount Sinai with the two tables of testimony in his hand, for the people were afraid when they beheld the skin of his face shining, so the glory of the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, was veiled as he walked among us in the flesh. What are your innermost thoughts regarding his transfiguration? that day on the mount, when the fashion of his countenance was altered, when his face did shine like the sun and his garments became as white as light, 
Are you truthfully as comfortable with this revelation of who Jesus is when his true glory was being manifested as you are when you visualize him veiled in humanity as he walked here on earth? Neither Moses nor Elijah expressed any surprise at his glorious condition when they were with him on the mount, for they fully recognized and knew him in his state of glory. And for that reason, there was no need for him to be veiled in their presence. The question is, are you desiring to commune with Christ in his glory or simply with the human Jesus who was veiled because of our weakness, our sin, our inability to behold him as he truly is, the son of the living God? In today's gospel reading, we ascend the mountain with Peter, James, and John. And there we behold Jesus manifested in his glory. And there with him, two venerable saints are engaged in conversation. And what was it we're told they talked about? If the scriptures had not made us privy to their conversation, how different a topic we most probably would have imagined they would be discussing. We would perhaps have thought that they would speak of that kingdom which the Lord will one day establish on earth, that kingdom which shall never be destroyed and against which the gates of hell shall not prevail. We might suppose that they would be reminiscing about Moses leading the children of Israel out of Egypt, the giving of the law from Mount Sinai, or of Elijah calling down the fire from heaven. I fear many of our modern-day religionists would attempt to convince you that Moses and Elijah were probably speaking to Jesus about his moralistic teachings, of the necessity of more humanitarian efforts, or concern for the conservation of our earthly resources. But such is not the case. For we are clearly told they appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, that is, his death. The translation of the word literally meaning his exodus. Moses had delivered the people from the bondage of the Egyptian taskmasters, whose whips affected only the body. But Jesus has rescued us from the slavery of sin, whose chains are coiled around the soul. Consider the import of what has been revealed to us in these verses. Moses and Elijah and Christ talking together about his death in the midst of his glory. And not just any death, but a shameful, ignominious death, a death of violence and agony amidst such brightness as the world had never before seen, but one day shall upon his return. But the text does not end there. For it continues on to say they spoke of his decease, which he should accomplish. Yes, the central truth of the transfiguration is that the glorification of Christ is always in connection with what his death should accomplish. His countenance was radiant with brightness as he spoke of that which he would accomplish on the cross. It is impossible to comprehend or rightly understand the transfiguration of Christ if you sever it from the cross. For the glory that radiated from Jesus on the mount that day was the first faint foretaste of the celestial honor which was to be conferred upon him throughout eternity as man when he would ascend from his completed work and take his seat at the right hand of the majesty on high. Just as the garden of Gethsemane revealed the depth and the gravity of his sorrow, so Mount Tabor reveals the height and the transcendence of his glory. But at the center of both Gethsemane and Mount Tabor, we find 
the cross. Always the cross. The focal point of all eternity. All depends on the death of Christ and on that alone. Until you understand the magnitude of what the cross means, what it has revealed to us about the heart of God, you will neither appreciate nor comprehend Gethsemane nor Mount Tabor, and you will be as the disciples were in both of these places, heavy with sleep. When we consider that the death of the Son of God for the sins of men was the all-absorbing subject of Moses and Elijah as they were with him that day, we should not be surprised. For this was what the law and the prophets have always talked about. And here they continue to talk about it when they appear with him in glory. The law is our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Did not Jesus say to the disciples as he walked with them on the road to Emmaus, O fools and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken? Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And just as the law and the prophets spoke of Christ, so also the time will never be when this is not the foremost subject of heavenly conversation and heavenly song. Though there are places where the cross of Christ is not given its true value and the sacrifice of Christ is ignorant or belittled, you can be assured such is not the case in heaven. And what about us for whom he has paid such a dear price? How often and how much do we speak of his death when we meet together for conversation? If we are disposed to think and speak of almost anything rather than about the death of Christ for our sins, surely our conversation is not heavenly minded. Is not this why St. Paul said that he determined to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified amongst the brethren? And if we now in this life, desire to see Christ's glory, we must do as the disciples did. They went up with Christ into a high mountain apart to pray. So too must we get above this world below, spiritually apart by ourselves, at a distance from the troubles and cares of this earth, and fix our hearts, our minds, our very being on where He now is. For once you have ascended the mountain, seen the glory of Jesus, you will begin to know him in a way that you have never, ever known him before. And you will not be satisfied with the veiled Jesus. Desire to know him as he is known in heaven, in eternity, the glorified Son of God. To the heavenly host, the scene on the mount was natural. And that on the cross was the transfiguration.